This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Poland proposes building a Fort Trump, and we're going to take a closer look at what deterrence really means in the cyber age. Welcome to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm Joseph Sternberg, a member of the Journal Editorial Board in London. And I'm in for Mary Kissel again, who is still safely ensconced in her secure, undisclosed location on leave. I'm joined today in our luxury podcasting studio on the banks of the River Thames by my friend and journal op-ed contributor extraordinaire Elizabeth Bra. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello, and thank you for that very generous introduction. Well, uh, you know, readers are going to recognize your name from our op-ed pages in recent years because you are one of our go-to uh, writers for explaining transatlantic security ties. You have uh, written for us on vexing questions raise, you know, ranging from NATO funding, military capabilities, the like. You've also got a new project launching at the Royal United Services Institute here in London, which is one of the UK's premier uh, foreign policy think tanks uh, and that project project is on modern deterrence, which is something we'll talk a bit more about in a few minutes. But since we do have the good fortune of uh, having a uh, NATO security expert in the studio today, I thought that we should start in Washington talking about this Fort Trump idea, because uh, Poland's president, uh, Andrzej Duda, has been visiting Washington this week, has again floated this idea that we have heard a bit more uh, you know, from Poland about in recent months about the idea of putting a permanent uh, U.S. base on Polish soil. They are even proposing to name it after President Trump, uh, you know, maybe to try to grease the wheels on this a little bit in Washington. And that, you know, is raising an interesting question, first off, about what's going on with this Polish proposal specifically, and then also just what we know about, um, you know, how transatlantic ties and especially the NATO issue is evolving under President Trump. So, I mean, maybe the place to start is with this fort. Uh, can you give us a clearer idea of exactly what this idea is and whether it's any good? Yeah, so credit to the Polish government for some very clever branding. Uh, they've been wanting a, a permanent U.S. military presence in Poland now for a while. But how do you get that? You, it's essentially Poland asking the U.S. to help. And uh, so far, they haven't gotten very far. But now they, they are more open about wanting it. And, and so President Duda came up with... Uh, maybe not in the spirit of the moment, but came up with this idea of, of naming it after Trump. And, and one must say, it's not often that you have a U.S. president who has made a career in real estate licensing buildings around the world uh, to carry his name. So this is very clever of the polls. Now, the question is, uh, will the president agree to it? Is it is it a, um, a fabulous deal? And it seems that he's open to it. And so what, what then comes next is the question, where would those soldiers come from and how would it be financed after that initial $2 billion or euro investment that the Poles are willing to make? And that's the larger question. And then on top of that, we have the question of would all uh, the other member states of NATO like the idea as much as the Poles do? It's understandable the Poles want it, but what about Italy, Portugal, 
Spain, do they also think it's a good idea to have a new U.S. military base very near Russia? I feel like we need to put this context in a, uh, you know, this discussion in its broader context because I think that would, I mean my sense certainly in recent years especially has been that uh, members of NATO in general are becoming more aware of um, you know new threats coming from the east uh, particularly after Russia's uh, activities in Georgia and uh, you know, Crimea and Ukraine. Uh, and so, I mean, my my feeling, my my impression is that there is a general understanding that NATO needs to do more um, to try to deter that kind of uh, Russian activity. Uh, and so, really, the question is: is this kind of uh, new permanent base built right in NATO's eastern edge the best way to do that? Because uh, you know, there are. Other options, they've been exploring things like rotating forces in and out so that you have a presence there, but it isn't quite as provocative as a um, you know permanent base would be. So maybe one way of phrasing this question is what is the right mix between um, you know actions that would be very strong but also might be provocative uh, versus other options that are effective at deterring a threat but can also you know help manage some of these other diplomatic issues that come up with Russia. Yes, that's exactly right. And it starts with the NATO-Russia founding act from from the 90s, where both sides agreed essentially to behave and have a a minimum level of uh, confidence building measures. So Russia agreed uh, not to be aggressive. Uh, NATO NATO promised not to build any permanent uh, structures in former Warsaw Pact states. And you might say, this is a viol- building a base in Poland would be a violation of the NATO uh, Russia founding act. But then the other argument is that Russia has already violated it anyway. So the question is, as as you said, what is the right balance between reassurance or deterrence and uh, provocation, essentially? And so, with a permanent base, it, it would be it would be. Uh, reassuring and it would be um, an instrument of deterrence towards Russia but would it be too much uh, deterrence to the point where Russia says well hang on a second (laughs) this is too far now uh, we're going to react to this and Ben Hodges the recently departed commander of US Army Europe has a good point which is that permanent rotation which is the alternative where you bring in soldiers um, term after term for six or nine months, something like that. You bring them in from the U.S. or wherever they are based uh, for a shorter term in in, uh, the host country. That's also a very good um, way of doing it because then you practice what it's like bringing in those soldiers all the time because that's what it would take in, in case of a conflict. Whereas if you have them based, if you have a certain number of soldiers based in the host country, you don't really practice getting soldiers from your home country that much. But in this case, with permanent rotation, U.S. soldiers travel in or are brought in from from uh, Texas and, and Colorado constantly. So that, that logistical chain is practiced all the time. And that's also a, a good system of deterrence or a good way of, of deterring uh, your adversary, in this case, Russia. Uh, I feel like this can also be a jarring debate uh, to listen to potentially for some listeners, because it seems like only a couple months ago, there were all of these headlines about whether NATO was fraying in some way, because you know, certainly we had the um, you know, regularly scheduled heads of you know, state and government summit uh, over the summer, Trump came in. There were a lot of arguments, um, you know, about spending levels, particularly on the part of many of the European allies. That is not a new 
argument, but has been taking on a greater sense of urgency under the Trump administration because you know, clearly Trump himself thinks that this is very important. And so, you know, on the one hand, we have all of these concerns swirling out there about, um, you know, is NATO even viable? How committed is the U.S. to that? At the same time that we've got this debate going on about whether, you know, there should or could be some new major investment going on in a U.S. presence in Poland. I mean, how, you know, what does all of this say about the current state of play on NATO or the various allies' commitment to it? You're absolutely right. And I think the, the ugly reality is that we Europeans love to hate Trump. It's just that relationship is just not going to work. But the reality is that Trump, despite his uh, aggressive rhetoric towards Europe, has increased spending on what's called the European Deterrence Initiative, which is funding on top of the Pentagon's regular budget that's uh, dedicated specifically to increase uh, deterrence in Europe. So that's uh, money that, that is spent specifically on us and on our security, and Trump has increased that funding. So that's uh, uh, that's an example of, of where maybe we shouldn't pay as much attention to his words as, as we like to do. And um, uh, what I think that illustrates and what the, the Polish desire for U.S. military base illustrates is the feeling that uh, among most European countries that we really need the U.S. to be involved. Yes, we may hate Trump, but, but really without the U.S. In actively involved in European security, we are in a very poor place. And, and so that's why, for example, when, when France tried to promote PESCO as a... As a new European defense identity, it didn't really turn out as as, um, as powerful as France would have wanted because all these countries, including Poland, essentially boiled it down to, to a, a much softer or or more diluted version and hoping to, to maintain good relations with the U.S., including good bilateral relations. Uh, PESCO that you mentioned we should uh, point out is the European Union initiative to try to uh, better organize uh, defense spending in Europe to have a greater cooperative angle on it. And again, I think that that's uh, been for me such a fascinating uh, example of one of these stories where at first it gets spun as uh, Europe trying to act counter to the U.S. or create a new counterweight to NATO. And yet once you actually start digging into the details, the idea seems to be uh, make it possible for the European countries who are participating in this to actually invest more effectively in their own capabilities to be better members of NATO. That's exactly right. I mean, PESCO is... Uh it's in the eye of the beholder what what it means. So to some, it may mean a European desire for, for more strategic autonomy. For, to others, it just means let's, let's uh, coordinate our uh, defense procurement so that we don't duplicate each other's efforts all the time. But if I can also add, uh, speaking of, of uh, transatlantic uh, relationships between uh, individual countries and and. and U.S. Uh, just this uh, spring, Sweden and Finland, who can, can't be accused of, be, uh, of being any Trump fans whatsoever, signed a defense agreement uh, with the Pentagon. And I think that just illustrates how important that transatlantic link is and how much potential there is for, for us to cooperate with U.S. despite agreeing on Iran and what have you. There is this long history of, of cooperating in defense, and we have lots of officers of, of all ranks and ages who have done it for decades, and we have uh, 
officials, civil servants, we have that long history and expertise of doing it, and it works every day despite there being political disagreements. We've been talking about Donald Trump, NATO, and a Fort Trump in Poland, and this is Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal. This podcast is brought to you by Alex Partners. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index, online today at disruption.alexpartners.com. Drive time, gym time, anytime. WSJ Podcasts. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Welcome back to Foreign Edition. I'm Joseph Sternberg, in for Mary Kissel, and I'm joined in the studio today by Elizabeth Brawl, one of our go-to experts on transatlantic security ties. And now I wanted to change gears in our second half uh, to talk about your new project, Elizabeth, at the Royal United Services Institute, which is a major think tank on security issues here in London. And I think that your project is fascinating because the, the focus of it is the sort of thing that sounds obvious as soon as someone says it. And at that moment, you realize that this is actually an important issue that we haven't been thinking nearly enough about. So it is the, uh, you know, the focus is modern deterrence. And as I understand it, and I think you can set me straight on this in just a, a minute, the real question that you're asking is, how do we think about deterring security threats uh, when we need tools other than the traditional military deterrence that uh, we've always thought about? So in the first half of our our conversation on this podcast, we were talking about NATO, which is a very old school uh, tool of deterrence, still very important, but, you know, not necessarily appropriate for all of the modern threats that we see, state-sponsored cybercrime, you know, that kind of issue. And I I think that 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 seems to really be what your project is getting at. And I thought it would be interesting to hear a bit more about, you know, how do you start to think about an issue like this that people know is out there, but doesn't really seem to have been the subject of much organized, you know, thinking or studying yet? Yes. So modern deterrence, if you think about deterrence in the past there's been our adversary has so and so many soldiers so we need so and so many soldiers and they'll square off and if we have enough soldiers our adversary won't attack us so that's deterrence but today an adversary can attack the homeland so you and me in our daily lives without a single soldier and it's sometimes it's it's called hybrid warfare sometimes it has other labels but the idea is that an adversary or, or enemy or competitor can use any means at his disposal to disrupt our daily lives. And that can have much more severe effects than a, a military invasion. So if you look at, for example, the potential of a hack of the power grid or a disruption of, of the satellite system that guides everything, including the ships that bring uh, our daily goods to us because we rely on global supply chains... If an adversary attacked one of those or, or or several, our daily life would grind to halt. We would run out of food within 24, 48 hours. We would not be able to use banks, so uh, um, we would not have electricity, obviously. This is a major effect on our daily lives, and, and modern deterrence then means that governments can't 
provide national security alone because they are not in charge of of uh, all these commercial operations that you and I rely on. So they have to work with uh, the private sector and with the wider population to, to team up and, and provide that strength in our defenses against uh, such threats. Yeah, the private sector component, I think, is what is so uh, important in terms of the way that you're starting to think about these problems, because I, I think that certainly the way that uh, ordinary people usually think about foreign threats is still very much in this mindset that a foreign threat is something that a government does that involves moving troops or you know a missile of some sort across a national border. And you know that conception of how threats operate is very bound up in the idea of the state uh, of, of the, the the nation or the, the country, the, the governments uh, involved in that. And yet, what you're pointing at is really a model where you know the vulnerability lies in so many different parts of the economy. It does lie in the private companies that operate the power grid. It operates in banks, which are, are private companies, and. You know, certainly the solution to that can't be to just nationalize all of them in you know, some way. So instead, there has to be some way to uh, de- defend against or deter that kind of threat uh, that will be targeting the private sector, but you know, have the state supporting that deterrence. That's right. And I think governments can be uh, the coordinator in all of this. Obviously, they have their own institutions and agencies and they have armed forces, but they can also coordinate especially companies in the strategic sector, uh, so that they can work together with the government to provide this uh, enhanced security. So, for example, when a company um, is attacked, or ideally before it's attacked, it can work with the government to, it and other companies like it, can work with the government to figure out what it would do in case of an attack, so that the result is not complete chaos, which I'm afraid would be the result today, because neither the sector nor the government nor we as ordinary citizens would know what to do. And if we have that uh, resilience within our uh, business sectors and within the population supported by the government, then it doesn't become so um, appealing anymore to attack us, right? I mean, the, the, the... appeal of of a, a potential attack is that you can cause mayhem but if if you just cause a little bit of of disruption then what's it's not really worth the effort i mean i can imagine people listening to this uh discussion thinking well i mean it seems so obvious that that would be how people would want things to do but it really is a big change i think in the way a lot of uh, actors especially in western societies that are accustomed to having a clearly delineated private sector and a much smaller less intrusive government uh, you know th- this kind of uh, approach to that sort of threat really requires a big change because i mean what we've seen over recent years is the uh, tendency on the part of companies especially in you know cyber crime which i think is something that mo- most often shows up in the headlines you know, at the beginning, I felt like there was this real tendency of companies to view it as a private internal matter within the company and only a commercial problem for them. Only slowly uh, you know, do some of these private sector actors seem to be waking up to the fact that actually they are uh, pieces in a much broader game of strategic chess, that, you know, particularly some bad state actors around the world are engaged in, and that that requires a different way of thinking about uh, how you defend your company from the problem, and also how you respond afterward. At what point do you need to go public? At what point do you need to rope in the police authorities and your uh, national government to, to you know, look at what has happened there? 
That's absolutely right. And and as as you said, companies have good defenses against attacks, but they see attacks as as a, as you said, commercial uh, concern that that really only matters to to the company and and should ideally be kept. Uh, uh, from the public limelight simply because it's embarrassing to have been successfully attacked. But if we think about or if companies start thinking of, uh, of themselves as being part of this larger picture of national security, and I think that's that's what needs to happen. National security is not just people wearing uniforms, but, but people um, in, in strategic sectors such as uh, food, banking, transportation, energy, and, and even you and me. If we all start thinking of, of ourselves as being part of national security, then yes, it's it's a bit of an effort, but uh, we are much stronger for it. And so if I may uh, just uh, mention an example, Denmark has been doing a pioneering work that I think can be replicated to some extent by other governments. So they have a national security coordinator who conducts, uh, he and his team, conducts uh, regular crisis management exercises with top uh, executives in, in strategic companies so that if something were to happen, it's not just you know the crisis manager in such and such company responds to it. It's the CEO in, in coordination with the government. And then... We are just in a much better place uh, as as a society. And another Danish example, you may have heard of Maersk being um, being targeted by a ransomware attack. The, the, the global shipping company. That's right. The world's largest shipping company was attacked by a ransomware uh, attack uh, last year, I think it was recently. And... Uh, for six days was unable to use its IC system. And you can imagine a, a global shipping company without a functioning, properly functioning IT system, the ships aren't going anywhere. And that's, of course, a problem for Maersk, but it's also a problem for, for all of us who rely on these goods that, that Maersk brings in every day of the year from different parts of the world. Uh, now, I know that you're quite early into your work in this uh, project, Rusi, but you know, I think one you know, interesting avenue to think about here is what does a solution to this kind of problem look like? Because I think that we will... Uh, yeah, particularly as soon as you're talking about getting governments involved in collaborating or working on a solution like this, the question becomes how much is it a matter that this is a, really just a question of educating the particular um, you know, actors and coming up with fairly flexible or informal you know, routes of communication between the private sector and governments uh, just so that they know, you know who do I pick up the phone and call in, in my national government if I have a problem versus how much of this requires some kind of legislative solution that is perhaps a bit uh, stronger or you know, in other contexts maybe a little bit blunter than that, that kind of cooperative approach or I mean is it some mix of you know needing to change the legal environment at the same time that you're working on this broader form of cooperation, what, what does a solution look like? Well, I think a large part of it is simply uh, practice. So if you think of um, a violinist, he doesn't just pick up his instrument and, and play a concerto, even though he knows he has the ability to do it. He has to practice a bit every day, in fact, for years. And then 
when he's asked to play a um, a concert, he just walks in and it's he's totally comfortable doing it because he has been been practicing it. And of course, that's what armed forces do every day too. It's not like they expect war every day, but still they exercise every day. And so I think the same thing is possible. The same approach is possible with governments and the private sector, where you just have constant exercises in, involving the highest level of uh, decision making, both within government and and the private sector. So that if something were to happen, it's just a matter of uh, routine that your response is just a matter of routine then uh, there will be I think some some more uh, comprehensive planning needed so for example what happens um, if there is a, m- a really major meltdown and um, for example hospitals are, are, are in huge demand then they have to figure out and then hospitals are often in, in some cases privately operated they have to figure out what is their responsibility towards the government to handle these uh, mass casualties things like that but it's it's not a, a huge change in, in uh, legislation I don't think uh, it's just a, a matter of, of practicing and um, another example is uh, Sweden where there is a, a, an agency the civil contingency agency that does nothing but planning for these for these emergencies, that includes food uh, supplies, includes uh, health care, or, re- or rather uh, casualty care, <laughs> and, uh, and um, electricity power. And so with that sort of coordinating uh, body, you don't really need to legislate companies into, into changing their behavior because it's really in their interest that we keep functioning smoothly as, as open societies. Um, it's, it's in their interest. It's in their shareholders' interest. I mean, listening to you describe some of those um, solutions, I mean, one of the things that uh, jumps out at me is this idea that actually, you know, governments and certain segments of the private sector already have a lot of experience dealing about these problems. I mean, for example, you mentioned uh, the possibility of a mass mass casualty disaster interacting with the healthcare system. You know, people already are accustomed to thinking about that in terms of a terror attack. Um, So it sounds like part of the challenge here is just to also get people thinking about how do we respond in, in that kind of way, um, you know, if what is causing the casualties is actually some sort of problem with the transportation system that's resulting from a hacking incident or if there's been some kind of communication problem with the ambulance network or, you know, and any of these issues that, again, might, uh, you know, be creating effects that look a lot like what people are already accustomed to dealing with. But the cause, um, you know, potentially because it is a, you know, actor working in an unconventional way, a cyber attack, for example, uh, instead of a bomb going off in a, a crowded area, um, it seems like the challenge is just to, to train people to recognize when one of these situations is developing and to know how to respond. That's right. The effects of, of any severe um, disruption or, or attack on our societies is basically the same um, in the worst case, mass casualties, but disruptions to to uh, our food supplies, disruption to um, our electricity supply, and uh, now these days, of course, uh, mobile telecommunications. And uh, so it doesn't really matter whether it's um, 
Hurricane Florence or, or Vladimir Putin, the f- effects are the same. And so that's, I think, what, what makes it easier to, to bring people in and, and make them be part of national security because they've seen natural disasters. And then it's not so different if it's a, you know, a Russian attack or, or a terrorist attack. We all need that basic uh, training and resilience to know what to do in, in a crisis. And uh, an example here in the UK is, of course, that recent terrorist attack on Westminster Bridge and, and in front of the Houses of Parliament, where it was really quite shocking that nobody who was milling about there had first aid uh, training. So it took uh, the just... Uh, the coincidence of Tobias Elwood, who's a, a minister in the defense ministry, who happens to have been a, an officer because he's been an officer. He had first aid training. So it took him happening to arrive at that moment to, to help the police officer. But what if more of us, uh, a critical mass of us had uh, first aid training, general resilience training, then it wouldn't be so attractive to try to attack us anymore because really, you know, an attack like that wouldn't cause chaos. That would be a trained person um, helping the police officer, whoever else the victim was, and then we would go about our lives. We have been talking about modern deterrence, but we're going to have to leave it there for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Elizabeth Braw of the Royal United Services Institute for joining me in the studio today. And you can find Elizabeth on Twitter at Elizabeth Braw, all one word, and Elizabeth is spelled with an S. And you can also find me on Twitter at Joseph Sternberg, also all one word. You've been listening to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks for listening and keep an ear out for our next podcast. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.